Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Welcome to this live event um, at the London School of Economics and happy International Women's Day 2022. Today, um, I'm very glad to be able to welcome you uh, and our guest, Elizabeth Nayamayaro. She is the founder of the global solidarity movement, He for She. She is an award-winning humanitarian and special advisor for the United Nations World Food Programme. Elizabeth has worked at the forefront of global development for over two decades through her leadership roles at the World Bank, World Health Organization, UN AIDS, and UN Women. Elizabeth is a political scientist by training and holds an MSc in politics from the London School of Economics. She wrote a memoir about her life and experiences that we will discuss today. I am a girl from Africa. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Christine, for having me and happy International Women's Day to you too. Well, let me start off with, um, something I've read from your book. So um, I've read this. Um, she squeezes my hand and smiles. I'm here to feed hungry children in the village because as Africans, we must uplift each other. I don't understand what it means to uplift others, but I nod. I know that I can finally stand up. I will search for food. I will live. I understand this girl is from, she was eight, uh, from Goromonzi region in, in Zimbabwe. Can you tell us a little bit more about this girl, Elizabeth? Yeah, so thank you so much, Christine, for reading that passage. This was such a pivotal moment in my life. Just for context, I grew up in a small village in Zimbabwe where I was raised by my gogo, my grandmother. And I had such a beautiful childhood because I lived as part of a small community, an agro-community for that matter. So, you know, we live sustainably off our land. But then when I was eight years old, a severe drought devastated my small village and literally changed everything for us. There was nothing to eat or drink. And one day I collapsed onto the ground just from hunger. I hadn't eaten for a few days. And in my young mind, I actually thought I was going to die. But then this incredible thing happened. This aid worker with the United Nations who happened to be an African woman as well found me and she gave me a bottle of porridge and saved my life. And it was such a, you know, I mean, such a relief, first of all, to know that I could actually leave and survive. But it was also the moment when I realized who this woman was, the fact that she worked for the United Nations. I was just like, that's what I want to become. I also want to become a humanitarian so that I can make a difference in the world. And so here we are, you know, more than 22 decades later and my dream came true and I get to do the work that I've always wanted to do when I was, you know, since I was eight years old, when that moment happened. Thank you for sharing that, the very personal story. And at the same time, I think for the past two weeks, um, we have seen pretty much the world upside down. And, and this experience that you had facing a crisis as a young child or at any age really, I think it will come in 
at, at the right time you're, you're sharing and how, how do we face crisis where there is this war in, in Ukraine? What, what can we do? I mean, that's a really good question, right? Because I think the important thing to set out first is that often when we look at the narratives of what's happening in the Ukraine or even what happened to my community, usually it's sort of through an us versus them narrative, right? What happened to me wasn't because of something that we had done as Africans. What happened to me was a result of a global crisis around climate change. We were really the early communities to, to experience the impact of climate change, which we now know that you know climate change is actually really the big contributor to climate change are the developing countries, are the developed countries, sorry. And, and yet the developing countries are, are paying the biggest burden and the biggest brunt of that. And so what is also happening in Ukraine, I think it's a reminder that, you know, this is something that has happened to communities in a way that is unfair, right? In a way that has now caused them to flee their own homes. We also know through my work at WFP that the number one driver for global hunger is conflict. So when these things happen, it's really devastating. And, you know, we have as the community have to develop a sense of resilience. But I think your the answer to your question is we have to all recognize that this is a shared responsibility. You know, global hunger is not an issue just for those who are impacted to solve alone. We all have a, you know, we all play a, a contributing factor to that, whether that's through our food waste, whether that's through our lifestyle in terms of how we're contributing to climate change. Greg, if I may just dive deeper into that whilst we're on the, on, on the subject that, that you've been involved in for the last 20 years. So immediately, I think that the UN probably have some, some work that they're doing on the ground would be great if you could elaborate a little bit more. But in terms of more medium to long term, as um, consumers, um, as individuals, uh, what we can do more to, to help address the, of course, it's one of the SDG goals as well, isn't it? Zero hunger. Yeah. What yeah, recommendation? I mean, no, it, it is a big thing. And I think it's also important to remember that hunger still remains the leading cause of death around the world in that a child dies every five seconds, you know, and I almost became that child, right? And so the issue is really, really personal to me. But I think what is important to also remember is that right now we all have a role that we can play in addressing global hunger. It is one of the SDGs, a community that is hungry cannot function, right? So we've got to start with that. And most people you know, are quite confused in terms of what they can do. There are simple ways to support. Right now what's happening in Ukraine is devastating. We are urgently looking to feed 3 million people. In fact, our executive director of WFP is on the ground, David Beasley, trying to do all we can to support. But in terms outside of that, you know, the other biggest driver for global hunger is food waste. You know, we waste a third of the food that we produce as a society, which ends up in landfills, which then contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, which then contributes to climate change, which then contributes to droughts. And then, of course, that creates our food crisis around the world. I think so just being mindful of the food waste in our own kitchen and homes is such an important aspect of addressing global hunger. Thank you very much for that. And, and going on to more broadly, um, from, from the perspective since today is the International Women's Day, what is your view on where we are today as women or especially women um, um, of color? 
Um, where do you think we are at the moment compared to where we were, say, you know, 50 years ago? And, and where do you think we are going to be in 10 years time? Let's, let's not try to be too ambitious. 10 <laughs> years time. What do you see? What do you, what, what we should be the target we should set? So first of all, as an optimist, I have to share some good news. The good news is that, you know, progress has happened in terms of gender equality. We see more girls in school than we ever saw before. We saw we see more women in workplaces than we ever seen before. But Christine, this is just like the bare minimum. We have structures and systems that are simply gender biased. Even when women make it in the workplace, we know that you know, unequal pay is one of the biggest challenges that women constantly have to fight. We have to fight the glass ceiling. And then it's even worse for women of color, because even on the issue of equal pay, right, there's a hierarchy. Men get paid the most money, then white women, then black women, then Hispanic women. And that's just is unfair and it's unjust for doing exactly the same work. So the work still remains. I think we are far from where we need to be. Just generally looking and actually in terms of how the world is going to advance and achieve gender equality, we're at least 100 years out. And that's way too long, right? And we know that again, the the gender dimension, the sort of the racial dimensions also make it very, very challenging for women of color. So the work still has to go. I hope that in 10 years time, we normalize the fact that, you know, we can have more than one woman of color, you know, sitting at the table and that's not seen as too much, <laughs> you know? We move beyond the tokenism of what it means to be a woman in leadership of color. Again, even in subjects such as STEM, we also need to see not only just girls, but also girls of color within those spaces. Yeah, on, on that, uh, maybe I can share that you know, some asset managers are already um, putting their, their shareholding votes uh, to, to, to that course and um, supporting that already. And of course, this year's campaign for International Women's Day is break the bias. You know, it is quite a strong phrase, actually, breaking it. Breaking it requires um, some level of, of, of force and determination. It's not just about addressing, you know, we're, we're breaking yeah. it. We're not just addressing it. And does it show some kind of desperation in some ways that we feel that we've been waiting for so long, been pushing, you know, we asked for 10%, asked for 20% women, 30%, is it enough? Should we ask for gender parity? Not, not ask for, should we expect gender yeah. parity? And how do we achieve that? So for me, how I interpret break the bias is really a call for agency around this issue, because I think it's just, it's taking way too long. But what I also understand from this is that the way that we're gonna break the bias isn't by fighting against each other, but rather by creating allyship. And this is what the He For She movement is all about, right? The idea behind the creation of this was driven from this desire to make sure that men are also sharing the responsibility of creating equitable workplaces, of ending gender discrimination, because I think it's unfair, right, that we expect women to bear the burden of not being violated, of not being raped, instead of simply asking men to not rape women. It's also not fair that, you know, women have to break the gl glass ceiling when men can simply remove it, because these are all systematic and structural issues that are built by men and sadly for the time being for men they are not working for women when women make it in senior leadership position and 
and Kristen, you you and finance, I'm sure you know this, that it's just very, very difficult for women to thrive in those spaces. And then when women leave, women get blamed for not being able to quote unquote cut it. And yet well, yeah. fixing the systems. Well, I remember the days when um, even in casual conversation, the women were nudge away because this is not a, a woman conversation. And this is actually, you know, it, it actually happened in the city of London. I can resonate with that. Uh, it has improved over the years. Um, I was talking about my experience earlier in the earlier years when I joined, but but that still exists. And going back to the He For She campaign, I remember reading some very impressive uh, commitments from the CEO of global companies, male, on what they exactly they're going to do to address that balance with that, that gender bias issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about the process of how do you get these powerful CEO of global companies to commit to these? No, you ask them to say three things that they will target. T tell us the process and the challenges so that maybe we can all learn how to talk to our line managers. So actually it was a, on some level, when you look back at it, Kristen, it was a very, very simple process. It was just simply an invitation. And I know, I know that just sounds crazy, but you know, just a simple invitation. But what was really successful in He For She was that it really created this inviting platform for men who want to do the right thing to do the right thing. I think it's very easy as well, you know, when we look at all the inequalities that women face, that it's easy to just kind of blanket all men as being bad and as being oppressing women. But what I found out with the He For She movement is that when we launched it, at least one man in every single country in the world joined the movement in just five days. And what that told me was that there was a huge silent majority of men out there who want to do the right things, who are also sick and tired of living in an unequal world, right? And so we, we saw an opportunity here with the He For She, you know, a man in every single country in the world. Again, the other big aspect to this was seeing global CEOs of Fortune 500 companies saying, I am he for she. Seeing heads of state saying, I'm he for she. And then we realized with my colleagues at UN Women that there was an opportunity here to ask for more than just click activism, right? If you're a man leading a corporation, then you have a responsibility to create an equitable workplace. And so we invited them as he for she impact champions, which was a really good nudge for them. And we said, in order to end this title, you're going to have to do some work. Number one, you're gonna to have to reveal your gender data publicly for the whole world to see on an annual basis. You're going to have to define three concrete commitments where you are not just going to push for gender equality, but where you're actually going to achieve parity. And we're gonna monitor that every single year. And you're gonna come every single year at the United Nations General Assembly and report your progress. And that has proven quite successful, as you read uh, in the book as well. I share some examples. Yes, um, I also find that um, asking companies in general to, to set targets for themselves and ask them to hold them, them accountable for it, monitor it, disclose it, improve transparency and accountability is a great way to do that. So in some ways, this is um, a bit of a, it depends on individual's commitment. And more broadly, at the policy level, uh, I think you worked a lot on policy. What can be done at a policy level so structurally improve and address those historical biases that we have seen? I think if I have to pick the one policy area that I think would be quite transformative 
is around the issue of women in leadership positions. Because right now, across all spheres of society, men continue to rule the world. And that also means some policies that they formulate may not necessarily be geared towards achieving gender equality. And so we need to have more women in leadership positions, making decisions that benefit women. And if they benefit women, Christine, I firmly believe that they will benefit all of society. You know, we don't even have the right amount of women leading countries. We don't even have the right amount of women leading Fortune 500 companies or just any companies, really. We don't even have the amount of, you know, the right amount of women leading academic institutions. So that has to change. And I think when we change this one, one aspect, I think we can start to see this acceleration towards progress. Well, that's great because uh, as part of the uh, inclusion initiative at the London School of Economics, one of the advisory um, board member uh, is Denise Wilson. Of course, she's the chief executive of the Hampton and Alexander Review. And not too long ago, they just published their update report and, and setting expectations for at least reaching 40% women. That should be the next target and significantly beef up the executive position. So it's not just non-executive director at uh, listed companies. We should be expecting to have more women, but also the pipeline now needs to be coming through as well. And, and at the and that is, do you agree with that we should still need quotas? I know this is an age old question. Where would we need quotas? <laughs> but but we still, we still, I mean, I wish, Christina, we lived in a world where we don't need quotas. But guess what? We do need quotas because if people are naturally recognizing the importance of gender equality, then you've got to be able to hold people accountable. I, I, it saddens me, but it is the necessary thing for the time being. And I hope at some point it just becomes the norm that we don't have to question whether women deserve to be in these leadership positions, right? Because we know that they do deserve to be in those leadership positions. So uh, for the time being, I am pro quarters, um, but I hope that is something that just doesn't become the norm because also it then creates this kind of narrative that you know it's a level of tokenism that's happening when in fact it's just equality we are pushing for equality with quarters that's all there is to it this is right just slightly change the topic a little bit just going back to your your, your book and your and your your childhood i think um it's at least for my, myself as well i am in the younger years i found having a role model extremely important yeah. because in our younger years it's, it's an exploration phase, right? We don't know, we, we kind of know what we want to become. I don't quite know how to get there. So when we see someone that we, we respect professionally, but also as, as a person, respecting their character, we, we try to understand what takes them there. And, and, and I guess that also keeps us patting, passing on the baton. You are obviously a, 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 the role model of a lot of women. Who, who, who is your, your role model? Maybe you have more than one. Can you tell us a little bit? about that? I mean, certainly my gogo, my grandmother who raised me, was my biggest role model. Not only did she teach me what it means to be fully human, and this idea of seeing myself as part of a collective, and with that, the responsibility to try and uplift those around me. It's in addition to that one moment, you know, when I encountered the UN aid worker, it was really my gogos, and this, you know, the teaching and the wisdom that propelled me to become a humanitarian because I realized that I do live as part of a collective. 
I belong to a community. And if I do belong to a community, and this is actually uh, something that comes out of this ancient African wisdom of Ubuntu, the recognition that we are all connected by our shared humanity. And my gogo taught me that when I was six years old. Um, and so she's certainly my role model. But along the way, um, one of the person that emerged for me, even from a very young age, as a phenomenal woman is Pumzilim Lamunkuka. She's the former deputy president of South Africa. She's the former head of UN Women. I got to serve as a senior advisor. And it was just such an incredible opportunity. And even this He For She movement, this was a visionary leadership as well to say, we've got to have men at the table. Um, and, and again, she taught me another important thing, which is one of the greatest skills you can have is to be a good listener. Whether that's listening to communities, whether that's listening to your colleagues, and, and I, I cherish that very dearly. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Thank you. Um, and. Um... Can you share with us some challenges? So it looks like that you've worked in the um, international organizations if you've always wanted to work for, but certainly you will have faced some challenges or even unconscious bias. How do you recognize that they exist and how do you address them? Can you share some tips with us? Yes, I mean, certainly. I mean, I can tell you about my first experience in London, which, I mean, now London in the UK is one of my favorite places because also I got to go to LSE, which was just incredible for me. But when I first arrived in London, it was a very, very challenging time for me because everything about me kind of shifted. I had been raised to know, to know like right here that being African is a blessing and it's the most, like it's the best part of who I am. And when I arrived in London, I started to notice that, you know, people held a very different understanding of who I am and, and where I come from. And there was a lot of unconscious bias about people from the African continent where I was perceived to be lesser than and where, again, the narrative perpetuated by the media of the single narrative of poverty out of Africa became something that I constantly had to defend and say, well, you know, we have moments of crisis, but Africa is a very diverse continent. It's not a country. So I did I, you know, struggle with that, Christine, but how do you recognize it? I mean, you do, you do. First of all, people make sure that you know that you are less than in the spaces where they don't think that you belong. And one of the things that I then realized for myself was, you know what? I was not going to be apologetic of who I am. I am African. I am proud of being African, hence the title of the book, right? Several years later. Um, but I think in terms of the work that I've done, some of the unconscious bias really that that really break my heart is on around gender. You know, when women are being perceived to be not good enough to be in certain positions, when we have to work extra hard than male colleagues for exactly the same opportunities, I think for me that really breaks my heart. And we are, as part of the work at UN Women, it's one of the areas that we focus on and we also try and make sure that, you know, women's confidence isn't broken as a result of society constantly pushing against them. And so 
a lot of work around self-confidence is really key. Yeah, that's a, a very important point. Um, I remember spending uh, a little bit of time living in the Middle East. There were actually a lot of uh, Asian looking workers. I remember I was shopping in, in the supermarket and someone came up to me and say, where do I, where do you find sugar? I was trying to be helpful. And I said, actually, I don't, I don't know. I don't use that a lot. And she was very upset with me and said, what do you, what do you mean you don't know? Huh? You work here. How come you don't know? I said, I don't work here. And she just kind of assumed because I'm Asian. Yeah. I work in supermarkets. Um, yeah. So so it is not people's fault, though. I think that what we learn from this process is that unconscious bias ultimately is unconscious. Yeah. It's to do with the exposure or the limitation of this ex exposure of the person who have been impacted by the unconscious bias who actually make that comment. So I think yeah. we should be understanding and try to educate them so that we can help them fix that unconscious bias. I found that this is what I learned from the London School of Economics is that Remember that um, our motto is, um, and to understand the causes of things for, for, the, for the betterment of society includes dealing with crisis, like I've just lost my Zoom, so I can resume that now, um, is, is that is knowing that we are disadvantaged as women is one thing. Sulking over it, it's not the solution. What's better is what, like what you've done, is to recognize that the issue exists and contributes towards changing it. And I think that's where our strategy of the school of shape the world comes from. Yeah. The world is not the way we want it to be. We should contribute to shaping it. Um, I know we we have we're supposed to start Q and A Q &A, little bit later, but I'm seeing a flood of questions coming through. Elizabeth, are you happy that we we start going through them? Yes. Let's do it. Great. Um, let me just go through them. Okay. Um, I think one, well, this is a question. I think one of the main issues for increased participation of women in managerial roles is the balance between work and personal life. Yeah. Women are expected to be the ones who take on caring responsibilities for children and elderly relatives at home, well, whether explicitly or implicitly. So looking at you and other UN colleagues, how did you manage to maintain your balance? <laughs> Who said we've managed to maintain our balance? <laughs> I think it's a really tough question. And it's also the reason why even with the He For She movement, you know, one of our champions on the He For She impact is Barclays. And we realized within Barclays, again, very male dominated is the banking industry that in order for us to really push for true equality we also had to address the issue of paid parental leave right because so that men can also share the responsibility right now a lot of companies have been pushing for maternity leave which is really needed right because women need to recover after a childbirth but at the same time we also know that when there's only maternity leave women weren't taking the time off because they didn't want to be stigmatized as being quote unquote a burden to the company right but when men actually took the time off it normalized this issue that you know parenting is just a, a one more responsibility that all genders should be participating in which also made it easier for women to take the time off but also it also meant that men were sharing the responsibility at home so my biggest solution for this is that we have to look at policies that 
really benefit all of the employees in the company, even though it, it, at first it might seem counterproductive. I remember there was so much a push pushback. Like, why are we pushing for paid parental leave? We need to give more women more maternity leave. And we had to kind of change the mindset that actually paid parental leave benefits women more than you actually think. Because when men are taking that time off to raise children, then it means women can enter the workplace uh, back sooner. So I don't think I've done a good job balancing work life. I would like to be good at it, but I am work in progress on that. I think you're absolutely right about the policy part, because the policy is going to change the perception and the initiatives provided by the companies, but also individually, because if if the parent in general can get the leave as well, then they can start to understand the challenges of raising a child and also, you know, balancing uh, what they need to do uh, work-wise or, or others or, or, or household activities. And then we'll have a better understanding of each other's um, challenges, right? In determined by our role. So great. So um, the second, another question is in your opinion, what are the top two to three interventions that every organization should implement break the bias? I mean, first of all, transparency around data. And Kristen, you mentioned this. What gets measured gets done. I think most companies find themselves sort of hiding behind the fact that they are not transparent with their data. And so they can just get away with so many things if things aren't out, out in the open. And I think the second thing as well is one of the things that we found really effective with the He For She movement is that there was a lot of like sponsorship, uh, there was a lot of mentorship programs that had been set up in these big companies. And I'm going to mention one uh, in particular, PwC is one of our champions. And one of the commitment was to achieve parity in their senior leadership position. When they joined the He For She movement, they were 18%. And they had all these mentorship programs in the company but it was when they started really pushing for sponsorship, which is different to just mentoring, right? Because there's an accountability to actually make things happen that we saw within 18 months of joining He For She, PwC achieved parity. They went from having 18% of women in their leadership position to having 43%. So sponsorship is the way to go. Mentorship is important, but sponsorship is the way to go. And then actually on this mentorship as well, Something that was really effective, again, is back to this issue of you've got to walk a mile in someone's shoes. And this was really important for men to walk in women's shoes was looking at how we can also do reverse mentorship. It's usually this idea that, you know, women have to be mentored by men. But actually, what was really effective, one of our champions is BNP Paribas, the big uh, French uh, bank. Reversing that mentorship was also really critical. And it also allowed for them to really rethink really about the kind of job description that they were writing for some of these jobs, their commitment on he for she was how do we achieve parity on the trading floors, but also because it was mainly mostly men, but also in HR positions and communication was mostly women. And they found that just by the by tweaking the language, by having men participate in writing the job description on the one side and women on the other side really helped to make sure that those descriptions didn't have some coded gender biases that made it very difficult for both genders to, to be able to apply. So, so I think those things are really, really important to me. Great, great answers and, and great suggestions. But I have a follow-up question because I'm also seeing a lot of, well, because my day job is, is to 
know, talk to companies and, 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 and research them. So I know more and more companies are coming up with mentorship programs, sponsorship program. How do you know that they're effectively working or are they just, you know, sponsorship working, uh, sponsorship washing? Well, I think it can be, right? I, I think that's the thing. I think the sponsorship I mentioned can't work in isolation of transparency and tracking of data. Because to your point, then they would just become that. But if they are linked to some KPIs, right, then obviously they will have to get done because otherwise they are not able to achieve those KPIs. But I completely agree with you. It's just one more thing, right, that companies try and hide behind and say, well, we have this new program. We have an unconscious bias training. But if it's not linked to actual data and KPIs, then it's just a nice to have, you know, and it becomes sort of optional for employees to partake in. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen good and good and not so good unconscious yeah. <laughs> uh, bias training. And let's move on to the next question. Um, how would you suggest uh, WOC uh, women seek out uh, and approach mentors when they may be in an environment where not many other um, WOC exists? Um, yeah. Yes. So I've also found that actually, I mean, as a woman of color myself and knowing too that there's so much scarcity at the top, first of all, there's always this, you know, sort of competition among women, which is created by systems. And I think that's an important thing to emphasize. I have traveled around with the He For She movement and college campuses. I've gone to corporations with the He For She message. And I actually have the time women pull me aside and say, you know, we actually need a she for she because we are not getting the support that we need from fellow female colleagues. And I also have to remind people that, you know, these are all systems that have been created to pretty much pit us against each other because there's this perception that there's only one position for only one of us, right? If Christine is there, then we can't have any other woman of color. And so, it can be very difficult, therefore, to find a woman in the space that you're in. First of all, if you're a woman of color and you have a leadership position, you have to bring people up. You have to lift as you rise, because otherwise it's going to be very lonely at the top for you or by yourself. But I think the second thing is also looking at other industries. You know, some of my mentors are not humanitarians. They are in the private sector. And within them, I've also been able to find some skills that I can then leverage enable in my ability to deliver my work uh, as a humanitarian. So I think be open outside of your own industry, because I can tell you that every single woman of color who has made it to the top has a story to tell that you could certainly benefit from. Absolutely. This is what we tell the company boards as well, where they say they can't find women. Look further, understand your process, right? If you can't find where you're looking, maybe you're not looking far enough. You're not looking wide enough there will be someone who you can connect, or we, who we can connect as well. Um, so uh, let's move on and see if there are other questions. How do you, so next question, yeah. how do we feel we can address the structures of patriarchal institutions that promote masculine ways of behaving, um, including the women professionals within them, and keep women who promote other women and feminist principles down and silence them. This is so basically over promoting yeah. the superiority of masculinity. Maybe that's that's how it yeah. can be. 
I mean, first of all, it's not our job as women to dismantle patriarchy. Men have to dismantle patriarchy. And I think we have to create those spaces, movements like the He For She movement and other movements that put men in the driving seat of recognizing their own privilege and being able to use that privilege to dismantle the systems and structures that are holding everyone back, including themselves, by the way. That's actually one of my big revelations launching He For She, that there are men out there, we're also sick and tired of the machinormative culture. They are sick and tired of, you know, this sort of, as a man, you've got to win. As the man, you can't show any emotions. And I'm seeing and encouraged by the fact that this younger generation, when I go on college campuses, they don't want to be held by this outdated notions of what it means to be a man, because it's imprisoning for them as well, right? To be, to be held, to be told that you've got to be number one in everything, to be told to suppress your emotions, um, so that's one thing i think it's recognizing that it's really not our job we have to actually make men do the work themselves as well because it's unfair it's unfair to put this burden on women and then the next thing i think that's really important is that as as the women in those leadership positions we have to set a new kind of leadership let's not allow ourselves to fall into the trap that when you make it to the top leadership position then you also have to kind of for lack of a better word, act like a man to be in those positions. I know that's kind of the easiest thing to do because we don't want to be singled out, right? When you are in those positions, you want to be seen as an equal. But it doesn't mean being an equal doesn't mean that you, ex you know, you, you also have to take on this kind of masculine way of, of leadership. I actually think this beauty when you see true leadership in, in all its diversity. So I think creating a new kind of leadership is a responsibility that we as women can bring to this conversation and that will normalize a new way of doing things. Absolutely agree with that. And I think that not too long ago, I spoke with someone who has fought her way through, um, I mean, she's retired now. So um, she told me that uh, for years she had to play golf yeah, because that's is what is expected of her if she wants to move forward. So I thought, well, that's that's sad. You you only have really that much time for yourself every week. And if you like golf, wonderful, right? If you like any sport, wonderful. But you have to force yourself to do it um, in order to fit into certain criteria. That's certainly not what how we we want to live. And even though even if it's just a few years ago. Um, women are expected to wear high heels to go to work or something. I think we come across situations like this, but that is no longer the case. So I think we have a lot of us out there saying that I'm not fitting into any stereotype. We're just going to live the way as we believe is relevant to what we're supposed to deliver professionally. And, and we will continue to live that way. And, and we should ensure that uh, that message is it's loud and clear to everyone. Yeah. But I also, Christina, I can't emphasize this enough, though, that really the way to achieve true, true equality is through allyship. And yeah. I, I promise you, it might not look like it on the surface, but there are so many men out there, a silent majority, who also want to live in a gender equal world. And so it's important that we don't see the issue of gender equality as a zero sum game, right? Where again, for women, it's a loss for men, but rather, mm. you know, true equality benefits everyone. Equality is just that. It's equality for everyone. Absolutely. All genders as well. It's not just men and women anymore. Gender is not, is binary. It's you know, not binary. Yes, we're with 
definitely supportive of the non-binary, which is increasingly how it is being referred to. So I think that's a positive sign because we're moving towards not putting people into buckets, which is very important conceptually and practically. So another question, um, it's a good one. Um, I remember I was a teenager when he or he for she launched and it felt like a breath of fresh air. What are the top milestones you think the movement has achieved and what is the next one coming? So, I mean, the biggest thing I think that we were able to do was to normalize this idea that gender equality is a men's issue too, right? For so long, this issue had been seen as a woman issue led by women for women, which meant again, that women had to bear the burden of trying to create equality. And he for she made that, flipped it on his head and said, no, Gender equality is a societal issue requiring all of us to, 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 you know, to, to contribute towards this. And then for me, the biggest thing, and of course, I mean, we know just how phenomenal the response was, which was beyond my wildest dream. Uh, not only did we have one man in every single country, but we also had 1.2 billion online conversations within that first week alone. But the big thing for me has been the work that has happened since then, where communities themselves have owned what it means to be he for she. Like in a few examples that I share in the book, in Malawi, the male chiefs worked alongside the female chiefs to actually outlaw child marriage in their country, which again, when you look in the past, it was the same men who were marrying young girls to other men, right? And so just that shift was really important. But beyond even just outlawing child marriage, they also then worked to allow 20,000 child marriages and send those girls back to school. You look at a country like Iceland, which has become the first country in the world to mandate equal pay, making it illegal for any company to pay women less for the same work. This was part of their he for she commitment as well. Right. So there was a lot of really good policy work that has happened. But also, I think for me, I'm inspired with the work on college campuses. We have thousands of he for she student clubs that are addressing rape culture on college campuses. I, and, and that gives me hope for the future, really. And the, the next milestone, uh, the next milestone, yeah. uh, Christine, we need more men to be involved. We're nowhere near where we need to be. So anyone listening today, go to heforshe.org. It is a movement that is for all of us. It is a movement that isn't just about talking about the issue, but also there you can find some very simple action kits on the things that you can do. You can read about what other men have been able to do. So it's really a platform for engagement where you also can be part of creating change within your own community. So that's what, that's the next milestone. We need more men to stand up for gender equality because we still look at issues around gender-based violence and it's still happening, right? It's still happening. So we are not, nowhere near where we need to be. Thank you. Um, and also um, next question, how do you suggest navigating when there are women of color in leadership roles who are the ones who are actually blocking other progressing uh, and um, or, or denying racism themselves? Ah, uh, you see, this is a tough question for me because I think it's easy to blame people. And as a woman of color, I know it's already tough enough. Like society constantly looks for things that are wrong with us. They they constantly look for ways to blame us. So. I'm not going to blame women of color in this conversation, just because I think it's really hard. I think the important thing to remember is this, there is such a scarcity at the top. And because there's a scarcity at the top, it can appear very, you know, that they are people trying to block because 
these are all systems that just have to be fixed where we feel like there can only be one of us in those positions. So I, but I would encourage any woman of color who is in a leadership position that you have a responsibility to advocate for more women of color to be in those spaces with you. You know, bring an extra chair at the table, have another woman of color over there. But I think generally speaking, I think Kristen, maybe you can also share some experience. You're a woman of color. You know, there is at the top and, and, and how would you how would you address this question? Have a voice. Make sure your voice is heard. And I remember being um, in in the panel. Uh, I was brought in because um, one of the candidates um, uh, said that how come you have how come all your interview panelists are all white male? Yeah. So we thought, oh great, we get Christine in because she she's a woman and she's she she's a woman of color. Great, she takes two boxes. I thought, oh, well, whatever, I will, I will jump on. Yeah. And I remember being at that particular uh, panel. Um, it was really interesting to see that how a candidate's um, uh, behavior is interpreted so differently through the eyes of, of different genders. So I think in general, at least from, from, from my own experience in, in the financial services, there is an expectation that if someone is tall and speak loud, and, and, and make big statements are the ones that who have leadership uh, capabilities. Yeah. Whereas um, a lot of the leadership capabilities I've seen, as you have said, is better listening capabilities, um, being able to form consensus, to be able to crystallize and, and synthesize the views of um, team members and bring the best decision with the consensus. And I think that that is also seen as in some ways, um, you know, not, not having an opinion. And that is not true. Yeah. You know, listening is very, listening intently and, and, and being able to take the conversation forward is a more valued leadership than giving out orders yeah. from, from what I can see. And um, going back to, um, you know, being, being the only one that is different, um, sometimes I try to forget about the fact that I'm different or, yeah. or maybe you're different is trying to do the, do the job well. Yeah. Other people will see, do it fairly, explain what you're doing and ask for feedback. Yeah. So, so by, by having that approach, I, I find it quite useful. <laughs> so thanks yeah. for asking me that question. Um, <laughs> We have a few more. I want to make sure that, that we go through um, them as well. Um, there's another one here. I was an officer in the Nigerian army when the he for she was launched. And afterwards, yeah, the WPS uh, agenda. As usual, it is embraced and all the proper uh, politically correct commitments were made. However, it is soon abandoned. How do you ensure this is avoided? So you're talking about women, peace, and security, and I, I, is, is that I, I understood that to be well? Yeah, I think this is what that question means, that maybe we start off with you know, very good intentions, but because of some reason or another, it could be political, um, that, that uh, commitment maybe is not, thought, it's not followed through. How can we address those? issues and, and not uh, or minimize the situation of getting caught up in, in politics. 
So, I mean, first of all, I mean, I'm glad to hear that you know of the Hifashi movement in Nigeria, because also if you're in the army, as you know, one of the other biggest challenge in the army uh, is violence against women, right? The people that are supposed to protect women often end up being um, some of the perpetrators of the most horrific uh, gender-based violence. And so thank you for hearing the message. And, and I hope that, you know, you also become he for she in the process. But it's, it's really what you asked is a very important question, because I think we often have to remember that real change happens when two things happen at the same time. We need the policies, the top down, but we need the bottom up moving exactly at the same time, right? Because policy alone doesn't work. Policy is formed by governments. Governments are individuals like you and I. But what, what I've found that really creates change is when communities themselves own the movement, own the issues and advocate for change and keep pushing for progress because you're always going to be there as part of your own community, right? And so relying only on policy is probably not the best way to achieve gender equality. When policies fail, what keeps progress moving forward is human beings like you and I standing up for what's right and creating that change. And so I would not be so much deterred. And also I think when there is this groundswell, right? When communities are sick and tired of the oppression, then usually it can also inform policy. So the work here has to happen at our level, at the community level. So you can't give up just because a government official has decided not to follow through with the, with the commitment. In fact, if anything at all, it should give you the energy to push for more change and push for more progress. Um, and so that's what I really recommend. And I think what we've seen even with he for she that the most sustainable programs are where communities have led and informed that change themselves. And making sure that these, uh, we have platforms like this one or, or others to be able to voice the concerns yeah. um, of, of individuals. And I, I remember that the, um, the UN uh, in general is very good. And in fact, I remember um, at, attending a UN um, guiding principle of business and human rights and, and one um, session particular hit me um, uh, uh, that I still remember. I was speaking on a panel at the main hall, you know, beautiful hall with, with beautiful ceiling, if you remember. Uh, we were talking about the um, human rights issues in the cobalt supply chain in the um, DRC and Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, a, a woman stood up from, from the audience and she said to us, uh, you are here talking about the human rights issues in my country, but none of you have ever visited. Yeah. I asked you to come and visit us so that you can see what you're talking about and whether it is right. And, and that, that really stayed in my head. And, and subsequently we managed to organize a, a, an OECD led uh, trip actually to go and visit uh, as you know, in, investor in uh, related uh, trip. And I think it was really worth it. Sometimes we have to um, take action and really understand what's going on. So um, that's a, a, a good, great question. Um, we have a few more minutes. I'm, I'm going to answer two more and then we'll probably uh, wrap up. Um, okay. 
Another question here. I have two teenage daughters. What advice would you give them to be successful in life and achieve their goals? What advice would you give to us as parents to help and support them? Ah, I love questions about daughters. I mean, first of all, I think just making sure as parents that we are not limiting our daughter's ability to believe in themselves, right? Most societies, in fact, this issue of gender inequality is one of the issues that start very, very young and usually started by parents themselves when they tell young girls that they can only play with dolls and nothing else and they buy the, the brother truck and when they tell girls that they have to take care of their brother. And so I think just simply trying to change that from being a parent and introducing what true equality can look like and making sure that girls know that they are capable of achieving the things that they say their minds to is really important. So encouraging their dreams, even if they seem wild enough, like if they're too wild, it's okay, let them dream, right? Because I think, you know, I am only here because I dare to dream bigger than my own current circumstances. I was living in a small village in Zimbabwe and I dare to dream bigger. And so, so that's really important. But also, I think also encouraging them to study you know, subjects, if they have an interest in STEM, let them go and study those things and let's not limit them by saying, well, that's really for boys and that's too difficult um, and, and putting all these limitations uh, in their lives. So I think that that's one, one easy way, I think, of encouraging them. And, and I'm only here because I've had you know, mentors along the way that have validated my, my belief that I am enough. You know, at some point I, I started to question whether I was good enough because society kept telling me that as a girl child, you are not good enough, you are less than. Um, so that's a, a really important uh, uh, part of it. There was a part two to this question, no? Yeah, what advice would you give to us as parents to help them and support them? I think that that's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's answered. And yes, I remember cutting Barbie's hair short telling my mom that I don't see why Bobby has to have long hair and she didn't tell me off. I'm very grateful. And I still remember that. <laughs> um, okay, last last one now. Um, for, for some reason, uh, young boys and men rarely see women as role models. Do you think that's right? And how can we change that? Well, that is, that is not right because they are, I think, Christine, I don't want to repeat what you said. They are such beautiful qualities that young boys can learn uh, from women and girls, right, of the way that we approach things, of the way that we compassionately listen, of the way that, you know, we constantly seek for peace before war or before conflict. Um, and so, so I think one of the ways that we can change this uh, is by having more prominent women out there celebrated, because again, we often tend to celebrate male role models, right? And I think creating that space um, even just this conversation alone has really been in, in, important to have because they, you know, we are two women who have achieved things in our lives that may actually be useful to other uh, boys and, and, and young girls coming up, uh, up the ladder. So I think we just have to be able to create those spaces where we can celebrate, uh, which is why I'm truly honored today, by the way, um, to be with you and and be celebrated uh, by my alma mater at the LSE uh, as a woman who has achieved um, something in the world. So thank you, Christine. Uh, you're very welcome. It's certainly true that uh, the school has has taught us so much and given us so much a purpose 
in life and the tools in order to navigate. And I guess for my take for that last question would be that um, irrespective of women are seen as role models or not, it is the qualities that we represent yeah. that should be should be should be referenced as as role models. So we hope those in some ways that uh, today's conversation has highlighted what those qualities might be. It's about being, as uh, Elizabeth has said, it's about finding allies, working together, understanding the importance of a community support, be open-minded, help each other out, and um, and be confident, knowing that you can address those issues and in the most adverse condition with obviously Elizabeth has has seen um, um, uh, and has experienced and look at where she is now, knowing that um, no matter what hits you, if you overcome it, you are demonstrating you're stronger than anything that um, what other has in, in terms of the stereotype that they have expected from you. So on that note, I want to say thank you very much um, Elizabeth, for being with us and sharing your wisdom with us at the London School of Economics. Uh, we're very grateful and a happy International Women's Day. Let's not forget that a day, what we learned today is for us uh, to, to um, appreciate for a lifetime. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.